So like I said, so the Old Testament, um, so the first thing is just kind of a little thing is the names of the Old Testament. Um, actually, throughout the, when it comes to the names of the New Testament, the Old Testament itself, um, it actually could tell you quite a bit about the books of the Bible, um, about it. Um, so first off, so do any of you know why we call Old Testament versus New Testament? Because the Old Testament was strictly law and the New Testament's gospel after the birth of Christ. Kind of, to some degree. Uh, I mean, there's some, there's some truth to that. Uh, it's basically, it's, it's about the two different covenants. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So the Old Testament's all about the Old Covenant that was established with um, Abraham. Um, and then the New Testament is the one that is fulfilled in, in Christ. And so the two, I mean, technically the, the Old Covenant is still in play at the very beginning of the Gospels. I mean, before Jesus is crucified. Um, that's why he says this is the blood of the New Covenant mm -hmm. at the Lord's Supper. Um, the book of Hebrews very heavily talks about um, the distinction of the two covenants. But in the Old Testament, so the Old Testament is called the Old Testament because that is the focus. And so where you're kind of, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying is that the Old Covenant was much more law-based. Um, you still entered into the Old Covenant by grace, but they are much more, okay, now that you're part of this covenant, now you got to boom, 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 boom. Which, I mean, we kind of have that too, but we're, but it's just much more legalistic. And you could find, you find that especially with the way Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. And the, and the Pharisees were very much trying to protect the law. And they came up with their, all their little schemes and ideas as to how to keep themselves from breaking the law. And so kind of the whole idea with the Pharisees was, so like if the, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but um, if my iPad is the law, the Pharisees would build up a fence of laws. And the whole idea is if um, the whole idea is, well, if you have these man-made laws, then it's so much and you, it's so harder to break the actual law because you have to go through this to get to this. Well, what do you, if there's a fence around a house, what do you and you want to go break into the house, do you break the fence? Climb the you climb the fence and leave the fence intact. And that's what they did. That's what the Pharisees did. They left their law intact and still broke God's law. Which And so that's why, so basically, and they got really strict about their man-made law, and which actually created a whole other mm -hmm. level of sin because you're burdening, they're burdening consciences with things that God didn't burden consciences with. Which, by the way, that's something people still do today. Um, to some degree in the church. So anyway, so names for the Old Testament, sometimes it's you'll hear called the Torah. Um, so for example, in the New Testament, when Jesus says, um, you know, that nothing from the law will pass away, he is talking about the Old Testament. I mean, he's not just talking about the commandments. He's talking about, when you say, when they say the law, sometimes it could be talking about commandments. And, you know, all that stuff. But it also can very often just be referring to the Old Testament. And so, in other words, that's Jesus, you know, Jesus saying that, I know sometimes you'll actually hear this from people, from Christians that say, well, now that we're in the New Testament, now that Christ has come, we don't need the Old Testament. 
It's like, no, Jesus actually... In fact, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old, Old Testament because Jesus references it quite often. And so... And also, it should also be stressed that we know we we could take from the New Testament itself that the Old Testament is God's word. Um, when you read in the in the New Testament, when Paul says um, all Scripture is God breathed, what is he talking about? Which books of the which books is he ta- of the Bible is he talking about? Must have been the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't around yet. Yep, that's what he's talking. He's talking. Now, not to say that the New Testament isn't God-breathed, but that isn't what he was referring to. As far as he was concerned, I mean, actually, some of the Gospels hadn't even been written yet when he was writing that, and he wasn't aware of um, some of the other writings, probably. So, so yeah, he would have been, his mind would be completely on the Old Testament. And so, um, and also you have Jesus, and then you have a quote, Jesus will say, and God spoke through the prophets to say this, or God said this. Like he would actually tell, he would quote books from Isaiah or somewhere in the Old Testament, he would say that God's, the Lord said this, which is Jesus himself saying that it's God's word. So the Old te- if it's God's word, that means it's important. Um, there's 39 books to the, the Old Testament. Um, the dating of it dates from anywhere from 2000 BC or BCE, if you want to be one of the modern scholars. Um, BC means before Christ. BCE means before, before Common Era. That's the common terminology they're using in schools nowadays because they're trying to be um, separate, overly sensitive about separation of church and state. <laughs> That's more PC stuff. Yep. And I mean, technically, I mean, somebody could make the case that technically that, I mean, Jesus wasn't born at year zero. So, I mean, there's some truth to that. Jesus was born more likely like around like five BC. Um, So, I mean, there's some case to that. Um, And AD, do you know what AD stands for? Yep. Anos Domini, year, year of our Lord. So it's Latin. Um, before common what? Era. Before common era. And then modern era, modern day, modern schools, when they instead of saying AD, they'll say CE, common era. So so it's BCE and CE. Does that sound familiar for those in school? You go to Concordia, so that doesn't really count. <laughs> I mean it counts, but they're gonna they're gonna stick with it. I've never heard of that before now. Yeah. If you go to if you go to a if you go to like Iowa State, I guarantee you that's the way they'll talk. I mean, you might get you'll probably get a professor here and there that will, but large percentage of them will go with the BCE yeah, or the CE. They'll probably get tired of the name Jesus and want to change that. Maybe could be. <laughs> so, um, so that's. But anyway, so so if you notice, it's quite a pretty long span. Now, without looking, can you guess what is the oldest book of the Bible? It's not Genesis, which is whatever we would expect. That's what I knew it wasn't right, because that would be like a trick question. Is Leviticus Mary? 
Nope, nope that's Dewar. Then Exodus. There's, a, there's one book of the Bible that's older than Genesis, and that's Job. Job. So, and we'll talk about Job in a little bit here. But, all right, so the Old Testament, it begins with um, the five, so it starts, so as you notice in the thing I have there, it's all broken into the different sections. So the first five books of, the, of Moses, so the tent, Pentateuch, uh, pent means five, um, that's also, sometimes that's, all, when you hear the Torah, sometimes Torah can mean to all the Old Testament, sometimes it could just mean the five books of Moses. So, um, so the five books of Moses, and liberal scholars nowadays will try to deny that Moses wrote all this. Um, if you go, and I can't, there's, and there's like three or four different theories on this. Um, did you ever, did you, you took Old Testament at, C, at Seward. Mm -hmm. Do you remember talking about the different theories in the five books of Moses? Like on the Pentateuch on who wrote them? We did. I there's like remember. the J, J, P, and yeah. they have like all the, it's like all these different acronyms. It's basically, and the reason is, is, and the reason they do this is if you look at it, especially Genesis and Exodus, there is a change in themes. And so they're like, well, there's no way Moses could have written all this. So they try to deny authorship. The only problem is, is you say Moses didn't write it your problem is going to be with Jesus because Jesus said Moses wrote it. And then you're going to have to call Jesus a liar. And that's going to be a bit of a theological problem. But again, some of those people that are going to go that direction probably do think Jesus is a liar. So, <laughs> um, there's, I mean, this is, a, I mean, the reality is right now in modern Christianity, we have a lot of liberalism not just, and I'm not just talking about the atheists and the agnostics. I'm talking about people who call themselves Christian. Um, and I say call themselves Christian because some of them, they go so far into their liberalism that they're not Christian anymore. Um, and, I mean, that's what, I mean, you have pastors or you have seminaries that are teaching their students that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And um, what they say is that they'll say is that Jesus is alive in your heart. He's alive, but he's not risen from the dead. Right. And um, actually, I know of there's a guy that he's. I don't think he's there anymore because I think he got sick of it. But he was going to Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and. She, he was talking about he was he fought with his professors just about every day I think until he eventually said I'm done with this and he like all of us were like everybody's like just join the Missouri Synod you are a Missouri Synod um, but anyways when he was there I mean he would hear regularly that um, you know Jesus did not rise from the dead Jesus did not die for your sins um you know, denials of the virgin birth, all those type of things. And the thing is that they are taught in these seminaries is because major not all of their, and I should, I'll just put it out there, I'm talking about ELCA seminary, is their pastors are taught, they're trained, because a lot of them will go end up in, like, in Iowa. 
for example, so like when I was in Ocheedon, over in Sibley, they had an ELCA church. And their membership, you talk to most of their membership, they're pretty much Missouri Synod. They're conservative. They're very conservative members. And the thing is, the ELCA knows that a large percentage of their membership still is. And so what they do is they train their pastors to speak in such a way that they're still liberal, but the conservatives don't catch it. It's what they do is double speak. It's um, it's actually basically it's really it's a form of propaganda. <laughs> I mean that's um, actually it's kind of like if you ever heard you know the book nineteen eighty four, the George Orwell book. That's basically what they employ is that type of speech, in their churches. And I heard you know I've heard one where they they gave a few. I went to a funeral for one, and the pastor, um, she said that the first thing she said was that. Jesus came to assure us of forgiveness. Can you guess what's wrong with that? He came to give, grant us forgiveness. Bingo. Instead of, but they said assure because they don't believe he actually died for the sins. Right. Um, second one was Jesus is a way. Instead of the way. The way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was one other thing that I heard that there's like three things I heard her say that were, were there were things that if you just blew, breezed right past it, you wouldn't catch what she did, but really was actually statements that actually put you outside of Christianity if you go with it. And so, and the thing is, is that the adults are fine. It's the kids that are in danger. That's why like, you know, um, I would be really concerned if you have any grant, anybody, you know, anybody going to the ELCA youth, National Youth Gathering this summer. Because one, they have two, one of their keynote speakers is um, a female pastor in Denver area. She's famous for being the swearing pastor because she's frequently will curse up and curse in the pulpit. And. She, again, she does not believe Jesus is the only way to salvation, denies that Jesus died on the cross, things like that. Um, the, other one, the other thing is, is they're going to have a mother as the key, a keynote speaker. And the reason she's a keynote speaker is because ever since her son has been two years old, she has been raising that son as a girl. And that is the ELCA is plotting, applauding it, and they want to teach kids that this is the way it should be. That's at their national youth gathering. Why would they anticipate that uh, they'd be able to carry that over? Because parents don't pay attention. So they know the thing is, the ELCA knows that they can win over the kids, the parents. The parents will go away eventually. So, so what do they use for a Bible? They use the NRSV, the the New Revised Standard Version, which is the more... That was the one I read a bunch of those problematic translations out of last week. So that's why if you ever tell somebody, hey, what's a good study Bible? Make sure you say the Lutheran study Bible. If it doesn't have the... Don't get it. Because <laughs> Lutheran study Bible is theirs. <laughs> All the only difference is that one word, the. 
<laughs> and I think ours actually came out before them, but they had to call themselves Lutheran Study Bible. I guarantee it's some poor guy, some poor Missouri City guy's like, we believe this? Like, that's not ours. Oh, I, put, I gave them 40 bucks. <laughs> so, but anyways. <laughs> the five books of Moses are... So the five books of Moses are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Genesis, and so um, there you see a lot of the details. Um, the, especially with the five books of Moses, a lot of these books, the names will tell you something about it. So... Um, Genesis is actually, the name Genesis is taken from a Greek word. And by the way, most of our, the names that we have are not the Hebrew names. Very rarely are they. Um, but the Greek name or the Septuagint name is Genesis. That's the Greek word, Genesis, which means beginning. So, um, it's actually a Greek word that shows up like in the Gospel of Matthew which actually gives you a little bit of light into the way Matthew, it's like right after the genealogy at the birth of Jesus, it says this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. In other words, this is the beginning, which actually is different than this is the birth. I don't actually like the, I don't like that it gets translated as birth because um, what Matthew is trying to convey is something a little bit more profound because he's, Matthew is not talking about the beginning. In fact, Matthew doesn't say in the this is the beginning of Jesus Christ. He says this is the beginning of the Christ, which is a very different statement because Jesus has not always existed, but the Christ has. Because he didn't become Jesus until he was born of the Virgin Mary. Actually, on the eighth day, he became Jesus, but he was always Christ. Right. So Jesus refers to his humanity. Christ refers to his divinity. And so he's always, always has been and always will be God. And but he hasn't always been human, but he always will be human now. What Top you're line. saying is is the Greek version, but the Hebrew is even different. Yeah, I I'd have to bring my Hebrew Bible Hebrew down. It's B E R E S H I T H Bereshit. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd have to I'd have to <laughs> hold on. Sam, you're... That's what the book says. No, you're, you're right. You're probably right. No, I don't want to rate your where book. Where are you reading that, Sam? Hmm? Where, where are you reading that? I'm reading the beginning of Genesis. You know, pastor so, suggested that we shouldn't read oh, the introduction. Okay. You're not... You're not <laughs> reading... I'm reading the introduction. Okay, so that's what I was wondering. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... Um, and the reason it's called that is because it's the very first word of the Hebrew Bible, of the Book of Genesis. I mean, so that's how, that's how they come up with the names. Usually, it's the it's the first word. But ironically, this is a case where because what's the very first word in Genesis? In in the beginning, <laughs> which in Hebrew that's just one word. In the beginning is one word, so it's actually a very similar word. So. It's just a different translation. But anyway, so the dating of it is about 1406 B.C., 1446 to 1406 B.C., um, very likely written on Mount Sinai. And that's actually of relevance because you think of all the things that happen in the book of Exodus. So, for one, what, how does God quite frequently introduce himself to Moses? He says, I am the what? 
the way and the life. Well, no, there's. Oh, uh, uh, I am I'm the God I am. of your, fa- your father, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Mm-hmm. You know, he does that whole thing. That whole thing every time, and so, um, so the and then there's the other thing, and so that's one part of Genesis. So the the last part of Genesis is all about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Right. So that's who, when it says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Who are they? And, well, they, they know who it is. But um, Moses is writing that down because they're, they're like several hundred years past. And so he's wanting to make sure that's written down because it was, what, 600 years they were enslaved? Yeah. So, um, so that was basically... They had to get that on paper, you know, written, well, not on paper, but. To get it written. Yeah, they had to have it written so that way people um, could have it and have that info to know that. Um, But the other thing is, is that the other major event in, so Exodus, this is actually a good point where I can actually point to the, the split in Exodus. And so what the second half of Exodus is all about Mount Sinai. So what, what, what's the big thing that happens on Mount Sinai? Yeah, the Ten Commandments are given. You think about the way Genesis starts. So it starts with creation, and then you have um, you have the creation of man and woman. Which, by the way, man and by the way, in Genesis Genesis one and two, they're not two different men and women. There there wasn't like Genesis one is the first man and woman, and Genesis two are the second man and woman. There are people that will argue that they'll say, well. There was, there's even some really weird ideas that the first man and woman was actually were actually vampires. Mm. I've actually heard theories like that. I'm like, mm. okay, interesting, cool. Uh, sounds like an interesting movie or something, but don't don't put your truth on that one. <laughs> but but actually, what it is is Genesis two is basically day six of creation zoomed in. It's kind of like if you're if you're watching. Like on a DVD menu, and you look at all the chapters of the movie, and you want to go to, you click on the chapter, and then you see the yeah. scene. And that's what it is. It's you're seeing the scene of day six. Um, you're coming up with stuff that I've never heard in my life. <laughs> so, well, it's when you're on the internet, you get you come across a lot of stuff, and and people sometimes throw these things at you. Um, but anyway, so like you think about it though, like the way it starts. So um, you think about the commandments. So day seven, what is the seventh day of creation? Rest. Yep, the Sabbath. Which which commandment does that reflect? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Yep, the, the third one. Yep, the third commandment. Um, the creation of Eve. Which commandments there? Fourth. Well, honor. Technically, you could put honor father and mother eventually, but more specifically, when Eve is created, you have um, shall not commit adultery. So oh. you have the marriage. There's marriage. Yes. Um, then you have um, the temptation. What was the very first, what was the thing that um, the serpent promised Eve? You'll have the same knowledge of God. Yeah, so you'll be like God. Mm-hmm. What commandment would that be? First commandment. First, yeah. um, all right, so... And then... 
It says that she des- it was desirable to the eyes. What commandment would be there? Coveting. Coveting. And then you have in the fourth commandment, in chapter four of Genesis, you have Cain murdering Abel. So you have the fourth, mm-hmm. you have another commandment there. Yeah. So basically, throughout those opening, and there's probably other stuff I'm not thinking off, off the fly mm-hmm. here, but they're basically the commandments are getting worked, are being demonstrated through the start of man, showing how it was already there. And, and actually, you could even have, um, the disruption of marriage and even the um, deceit. I mean, you shall not bear false witness when they said, where were you? And they kind of were a little sneaky. Well, they hid. Yeah. They were dishonest. That could probably be an eighth commandment. Um, you're supposed, even like you're supposed to build up your the reputation of others when he says that um, you should, you know, this woman you gave me, he blamed her, but... Remember, actually, who is really the fault when he said that? It wasn't really just the woman's fault. God's it's God's fault for giving him. Which, yeah. by the way, which commandment could be that? Idols. I'd yeah. say the second commandment. Because hmm. you're not you're not giving thanks to God, you're cursing God. Yeah. So basically, I think we just covered every commandment. Hmm. So that's why it's this is being written at um, on Sinai. Because the Ten Commandments are being given, and so, uh, and it all relates. So the first part of Genesis, you have the, you have creation and fall, um, so which includes the you know Cain and Abel and all that stuff. So basically, chapters one through four, you have the flood, and then the Tower of Babel is basically kind of the bridge between the two. The Tower of Babel, you cannot properly understand the Tower of Babel unless you understand that it happened right after the flood. If you don't take that into context, you're, usually you get some really kind of weird interpretations on it. And, and I, heard, I can't remember, I've heard some weird ones on it. But anyways, um, from Lutheran pastors, Missouri Synod Lutheran pastors even. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but anyway. Right after the flood. But anyways, the reason why it's important that it's right after the flood is because, well, think about... What's the timeline? Well, I'm talking, like, in, I don't know. I mean, there's a there few... there wasn't ch- around except for Noah. Well, it sh- I should say, in ter- it's, it's written after the record of the flood. So, it's, okay. so probably a couple generations had passed. But it was, it's pro- it was enough that they remembered the flood... So, but it was enough that there, but it was also enough that there was repopulation. And so the whole idea that, and part of the problem comes from one English word, one translate, one word that gets translated is they built the tower into the what? They're building it towards the what? The heavens. What does heavens mean? God's place. Well... That's what we usually go to, but it's actually meaning... What's another word? Wait, Anything up. It could just mean the sky, and that's yeah. actually the more likely reason. And the whole thing is why it's important in context of the flood is because they think, well, you know what? If God floods us again, what we're going to do is it's they're thinking we're, 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 we're a bunch of smarty-poos, and we're going to build this huge tower, and if there's a huge flood, we're going to go to the top of it. He can't flood us out. And so God's like, really, you think you're that smart? 
now I'm going to change the language on you and you can't build it. <laughs> so um, basically they thought they're smarter than God and God so said, no, you're not. <laughs> In fact, and actually the changing the languages is kind of funny because it actually shows that God kind of has a sense of humor the way he did it. Because when people just suddenly start speaking a different language than you, after they're speaking your language, what do you think they are? Kind of dumb. You think they're fools. And so that's what he did, is he turned them into a bunch of fools. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, so, so that kind of serves as the bridge to some degree, though. Because right after the Tower of Babel, you get a genealogy that goes all the way down to Abraham. And Abraham is... Which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, Abraham was not a believer when he was first called. So in Genesis 12 is when he's called by God. And that's the first time he ever believed in God. His father was a, was a, would be considered a heathen. And so, which is actually kind of amazing that God would choose, out of all the people, to choose to be the father of his nation, he chooses this guy to be it. And... And then, so, you, so then the rest of it is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph is where it ends. And then that leads into Exodus, which is broken into two parts again. And by the way, people sometimes, sometimes people ask, so why do we read all... Exodus is actually really... Actually, Exodus through Deuteronomy as a whole, and I realize Leviticus is hard to read, but it is valuable because the story of the Exodus is basically a story of everybody. Every one of us, to some degree, are connected to that. So think about it. Exodus begins, what is the state of, what are, how, what's the living conditions for the people of Israel? Yeah, they're in slavery, which, um, which is, that's, it was pretty awful slavery at that point. Um, and not to mention you had, you know, Pharaoh killing all the children because he was becoming fearful of them. And so, and it's 600 years that they were enslaved. I mean, that is just incredibly long. I mean, the United States isn't even at, hasn't even hit 250 yet. And so, I mean, we just celebrated 500 years since uh, Martin Luther, the Reformation. So add another 100 years and that's how long it was. So, it's incredibly long time, and so that's and so they they start out in slavery, and then um, Moses, you know, preaches to Pharaoh, you know, let my people go, and then they through incredible signs and wonders, he gets Pharaoh to let him go, and they cross through the Red Sea. Eventually, they cross through the Red Sea to safety. And they wander in the wilderness, and eventually they arrive at their promised land. In life, we are born into the slavery of sin, death, of the devil. We walk through the waters of baptism, where God drowns the devil, sin, death, and the devil. Just as he's in the flood, in the, the, you know, the Red Sea, he, mm-hmm. um, he, he drowned Pharaoh and the army. And we wander through this wilderness of life. We complain and we grumble about what we have to eat. And then after however, however long it may be, we arrive at the promised land. It's basically, it's an image of what God does for everyone. For all of his faithful. 
And, and it's something that actually gets repeated later in the Old Testament. So anyway, so Exodus, like I said, so it begins with the whole, um, you know, Moses. And but I don't know if you, by the way, if you notice in all these, I have like a key chapter. So if you wanted to do like a really good crash course on every book of these, every book of the Bible, or, um, these were the, being the chapters you do to just quickly get an overall understanding. So like Genesis, Genesis 3, I would say that's the fall. Um, and most of these I only do like one key chapter, but every there's a couple that I do multiple, and Genesis is one because of its breakup. The other one is Genesis 15 because that's when Abram is becomes Abraham. And that's where he receives the new covenant. And so Exodus, the two key ones would be Exodus chapter 3. You could maybe make a case for chapter 4 because that is when Moses is called. That's the burning bush. And then the other key chapter is chapter 20 because that's the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so, because those basically summarize the two, that pretty well summarizes what the themes are of the, um, by those books, that book of, of the book of Exodus. Now it's better to read the whole thing, but if you wanted to do just a quick overview, these would be those chapters you'd go to. But like I said, if with Exodus 3, I'd honestly say just go into Exodus 4 because the whole conversation with God goes into the, I think it goes into the fourth chapter. So, which I think that's actually, and I think that is one of the cool texts of the Bible, is the converse, is that, is the burning bush. And, and Moses, it's, I think it's so amazing is that Moses does this whole thing where he says, well, I'm not a very good speaker. And he did a very good job of convincing the whole world that he isn't a good speaker. Because if you, but if you really read what's going on in the text, Moses is really a pro, he probably actually is a gifted speaker. He grew up in Pharaoh's house, which meant that he was probably very well educated. What he's doing is he's making idiot every excuse he could come up with to get out of the job. It's kind of like your kids are telling you that um, they can't clean their rooms. Like, I'm tired. I can't do anything. And then if you actually give in 10 minutes later, they're going to be doing something that takes a whole bunch of energy. It's like, yeah, I think you had the energy there. <laughs> so, and that's what Moses is. He's kind of playing the role of the little kids. Like, no, I don't want to. So um, Leviticus, and, and by the way, the reason it's called Exodus, that's pretty explanatory because it's mm -hmm. the Exodus. Um, Leviticus, called Leviticus, because it's about the Levitical codes. Um, who were the Levites? They were, they were the the carriers of the temple. They, the they were the ones, yeah, the priests. Yep, they're they the priests. The ones that carried the temples and, and took care of the temple Yep. as they were wandering the... And so, and by the way, if you're no, I don't know if you're noticing that most of these books are written really close together, like... Exodus, Leviticus, I mean, Exodus is 1446, Leviticus 1445, Numbers 1445. I mean, it's all really, really close together. Um, Genesis 1446. So there is basically like one after the other, and then a huge gap until you get to Deuteronomy. Um, but that's why I have Leviticus 8 as the key chapter. I have Leviticus 8 as the key chapter there. Uh, because that is mostly dealing with Aaron's the duties of Aaron and his descendants. 
because Aaron is the first priest. So Moses was not a priest. He was a prophet, but he wasn't the priest. The priest was Aaron. And so, uh, but that's all about the rules and everything with them. So that, and Leviticus, it, like I said, it is a tough book of the Bible to read because it's not, I'm not going to sit here and say, you read it, it's so exciting. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie, I know it's not. I've, many of the times when I've tried, when I've been reading through the entire Bible, that is usually the one that gets, all of a sudden it slows to a crawl. <laughs> because I'm like, I've read already this week. <laughs> so I'll come back to that later. And, or actually what I learned to do was when I do, now what I do is I'll, I'll break up Leviticus with like some of the smaller books of the Old Testament and just kind of read a few chapters, read this book, read these. That's easier. Um, but the thing is, is it's still important because it does inform, again, it informs a lot of the New Testament. And um, especially when you talk about like things like the Day of Atonement is um, that is a very important thing to be familiar with. Um because it gets referenced pretty heavily in the New Testament. Uh, the book of Numbers, you have, um, again, Moses, writer, is the author. A uh, key chapter I picked is number six. And the reason I picked that one was because of what ends number six. The very last verse of it, I'll bet you you know very well, is you probably heard it many times in church. The Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. That's the Aaronic benediction. And that is, whenever you hear those words, those are coming straight from Scripture. Because Aaron was told to bless the people with that. And when, the, when myself or Pastor Salcedo is saying that at the end of the service, we are carrying on the tradition of Aaron of blessing you, the people, with those words. And, I, and it's actually the word countenance or favor, um, and I kind of, whether I say countenance or favor during the service basically comes down to which one I remember at the moment when I'm saying it. So sometimes countenance comes to my head, sometimes favor does. But ultimately, do, those two, those words, I mean, they mean the same thing. And what it simply means, it means that God smiles on you. And so what we, that is, and one thing that we as pastors really got to get ourselves to stop saying, and it's a hard, hard habit, is the saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The problem with it is the word may. And the problem is, is also because this is one of the reasons why being a late, I I'm, don't want to ever become an English teacher because the language is always changing. And the word may, when you had, like when the TLH, the old red, page 5 and page 15 hymnal, if you remember that one, oh, yeah. <laughs> that one had may in a lot of it. But the thing was, it was written in the 40s, when may was basically just a soft command. It was a command, but it's just kind of a polite way of saying, dude, may you do this for me? You're not really asking them. You're just being polite about at commanding them to do it. Right. In today's age, it's like, if you could get around with it, if, if it doesn't work for you, let's understand, but may you, 
do this. So when we say, may the Lord bless you and keep you, in today's language you hear, well, some of you, God just does not really like, so he may not bless you. So that's what we've got to say, may. Because I, some of you are Packers fans, and no, just kidding. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's why we have to stop saying may, because it doesn't mean the same thing in, this, in our language. And, by the way, admittedly, that's something that, I think it's the English Standard Version is the one that put may, still puts may. And the reason is, is because they, they follow the tradition of the King James, which used may all over it, which at that point, it worked. <laughs> When the King James was translated, ESV needs to break the tradition because the word has changed its meaning. So I maintain that we don't speak English anyway. We speak American. That's true. <laughs> we don't speak anything close to English. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we have many versions of even America oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to. I lived in Georgia for a year. So. Uh, Actually, it was, took me a long time before I heard a true hardcore Georgia accent, though, because like where I was at on my vicarage was basically retirees, so over half of our membership was from the north. So like, I mean, we had like two families that were le legitimately from Georgia. The rest of them were like from Connecticut, Michigan, Iowa, and things like that. And one time, I was just sitting there at a gas station waiting for the senior, the my supervisor supervising pastor he was just filling up and i heard a guy talk and it was a totally full blown georgia accent it sounded like larry the cable guy i'm like <laughs> people really do talk that way <laughs> and larry's I, from nebraska <laughs> i know but you realize he's impersonating people he's heard yeah, from the yeah, south yeah. but i'm like boy people do okay so um but anyway, so like I said, so that number six is very important. And by the the reason it's called numbers is because there is a lot of numbers in it, very simply. Um, a lot of census and data about the, you know, the different tribes of Israel and things like that. So, and by the way, the, there are some people that say you should not keep census, you should not keep numbers, because David got, there's a point where David did that and... Um, bad things happen for that the re basically it comes down to the reason why the problem wasn't that david kept a census it was why david did it david did it for his ego he's like look at what i've got and so basically god was you know knocking his ego down whereas when we're if we're doing it just for the sake of practical purposes to keep track of things that's not a problem and that's i mean because that's what numbers is doing the book of numbers is full of censuses and if there's a problem with censuses then god was sinning by right allowing the book of numbers being written <laughs> so um by the way i've i still argue by the way genesis 50 is also an argument for taxation just or the whole story of joseph i argue, i say that's an argument for taxes that taxes is not theft because um, if you know that how did how was it that Joseph preserved Egypt by taking in the grain a certain percentage of it what would we call that taxes yep and who or who told them to do that God yep so if we say taxes are theft we're going to call God a thief and a sinner 
Well, I think taxes then are a little different than taxes now. It's still taxes either way. Yeah. The word's the same. But it's the application yeah. of taxes that makes it. Yeah, well, but even though, even in Romans, you still have uh, Paul saying, saying to the people, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes, yeah. yeah. And their government was... And he was talking about the Romans were far, far worse than our government. Right. Um, that's why, like, I always, I always find it funny. It was like there's, there's a, there's a guy that's he's a, like a Christian comic. He writes or like he writes, he makes cartoons or whatever cartoonist I should say, Christian cartoonist. And he wrote, he said people are like, you know what? Um, they complain about Romans thirteen or Romans twelve or thirteen. Anyways, when. Paul writes that um, that we are to pay taxes to that they're to pay taxes to the government, and people is like, yeah, well, Paul didn't. You don't understand. Obama is really bad because this is when Obama was president. They said he is so much worse than anything that Paul had to deal with, and so, um, and then so he wrote a put a different cartoon on the bottom where it shows Obama walking down the streets of D.C. With burning Christians on pull, hanging on poles in front of the White House, I'm like, yeah, I remember when this happened, <laughs> because that's what Nero did. He lit the street, the streets of Rome, with burning bodies of Christians, and that's the person who Paul is saying you're supposed to pay taxes to that guy. <laughs> so, I think we will lose a lot of argument now. And even Luther, I've read up on here, when he talks about taxation, he begrudgingly admits that taxation is, that governments have the right to tax. But he says that a tax, a government can tax, be excessive in their taxation. And if it's excessive, then it can become a sin. And, and in his time, it legitimately was a problem. I mean, people were getting taxed more than their income. It was, they were like, they told, there was a, it wasn't even a percentage. They said, you had to pay this much amount. And people were actually taking loans out from the banks to pay their taxes. Because they couldn't afford it. So, anyway, sorry, that was a really sidetrack. <laughs> so, all right, so from, so Deuteronomy, um, this is another one of those books of the Bible that has a Greek name. The first part of it is Deuteros. Can you guess what that Deuteros means? Two. Second. And then nomi comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. So it literally means the second law. And it's called that because it is the second record of the Ten Commandments. It is in um, Deuteronomy. However, I don't list that as the key chapter of Deuteronomy. The key chapter is Deuteronomy 6 especially verses 4 to 7. And the reason is, is because if you were, um, if you were a Jew or a Hebrew, those verses, you were required to know it by heart. And I mean, really, really know it. Like, this is the one where he talks about, you know, put it on the doorpost and everything. It says, specifically verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, or the way it says in the Hebrew version of this, the Hebrew wording, 
is Shama Yisrael Yahweh Elohenu Yahweh Achad. That is, they were actually to, if you're a Jew, you have to memorize that in English and in Hebrew, if you're an American Jew. Um, the Jews had to learn it in Hebrew, memorize it. Um, and the reason is, is, and that was the most, that is the most important verse of the entire Old, Old Testament. And it's actually, it's a very important verse for us Christians. Now, I would argue is that from a Christian perspective, the most important verse of the Bible is, of the Old Testament is Genesis 3.14. But I'd say this is a very close second. Uh, Genesis 3.14 is the promise um, that um, the offspring of Eve would um, bruise the serpent's head. So that's the, that's the, the proto-Oyengalium, the first gospel, the first promise of Christ. So I'd argue that that is because that verse sets the entire Old Testament into motion because the entire Old Testament is all about preparing for, for Christ. And so, <clears throat> but Deuteronomy 6 is extremely important because you also notice in that chapter, you also have, um, so when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. Where do you get that from? Verse 5. And so those Two, two very important verses there. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You should bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." Verse 4 and 5, basically those are the verses, that those are words that every single, not just Jew, but every single Christian should have them memorized. And this is also, you know, when we talk about the, tr if anybody, fall, there's, a tr there's a temptation that people could fall into, um, tritheism. They know that, okay, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So there's three gods, right? No. This is why we read the Athanasian Creed once. Some people argue we should actually do it twice a year at least. Um, we say there is not three gods, but one, one God. God. There's a reason we say that every year, so that way we eventually you hear that, that should be familiar, be sticking in your head. When somebody says, oh, there's three gods. No, there's not three gods, there's one God. And where do we get that there's one God? Because right here, the Lord, Yahweh, every time you... Every, in the Old Testament, every time you see Lord in all caps, that is Yahweh. That's the name of God. Um, however, if you ever see Lord God and God is all, in all caps, that means God is supposed to be Yahweh. So in other words, and the reason they do that is because at that point, you actually get the real Hebrew word for a Lord, which is uh, Kyrios. And, no, not Kyrios, but Adonai. Sorry, Kyrios is Greek. But Adonai shows up there, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. And so they can't go, well, Lord, Lord. So when it'll say like Adonai, Yahweh, and they, because there's these people, there's some that refuse to use, many, many will refuse to say the name Yahweh because they're afraid they're going to mispronounce it and violate the 
commandment, don't use the Lord's name in vain. That's the whole reason. And I'm like, we've been mispronouncing Jesus for who knows how long. So, heck, I just mispronounced Jesus now. It's not Jesus. It's supposed to be Yeshua. So, if we're afraid of mispronouncing Yahweh, we should be afraid of mispronouncing Jesus. We shouldn't. That's, going, that's, that's actually getting very pharisaical about the commandment. <laughs> so... We should actually we shouldn't be so afraid that to say the name of God that we don't say it at all, and that's actually what's happened is many Christians don't even know what the name of God is. There are Christians that have never heard the name Yahweh, and I actually had that experience in my previous congregation. They're like, "Well, that's no, that's a Muslim name." I'm like, "No," which, by the way, that is blasphemy to say that, um, <laughs> because you basically it was a form of mockery of God's name. But anyways. Uh, but I mean that, which by the way, that shows another pro another cultural problem. But the fact that we don't know it is kind of highlighted behind that. So anyway, so when they would have Adonai, Yahweh, they can't do Lord, Lord. So instead they do Lord, regular Lord, because that's actually what Adonai is. And then they put God in all capital letters. So actually when it says you shall not use the Lord's name in vain, it's actually... You shall not use Yahweh's name in vain. And there are actually some passages of the Bible that make more sense if you just read it as Yahweh. They, especially when you have points when you have the comparison between Baal and Yahweh. Because they call Baal Lord too. Baal was a Lord. And so like, we worship the Lord, you worship Baal. If they, if they, if they actually spoke that way in Hebrew, like, well, we think Baal's the Lord, too, so what are you arguing? We, yeah, we worship the Lord, too. What, what, what are you talking about? But if you say, we worship Yahweh, that's very distinctive. They know exactly who you're talking about. Yahweh is a way of identifying which God you're talking about. So, but anyways, here we have it. That, so verse 4 is so incredibly important because that is a confession that God is one. There's one person. And by the way, the, of the, the other extreme, the thing that you have a lot of times in many modern Christian, well, not, they're not actually Christian when they do this, but um, like T.D. Jakes, do you know who he is? Very prominent TV preacher. Um, and he, his church, it's called the Potter's House. It's down in Houston. No, it's not. It's somewhere in Texas. Uh he actually has done pretty big stuff. Like some of the, he did like a live Jesus like passion play in New Orleans, aired on Fox a couple of years ago. He was the one that sponsored that. But he's what is known as a modalist, and what he believes is that well, the Father, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different versions of God. So basically, God kind of morphs himself. So sometimes he appears as Father, sometimes he appears as Son. Sometimes he appears as Holy Spirit, but they're really just one. Per, they're one person. And that's what's known as, that is, doesn't work either, because there's one particular, particular event in the New Testament that becomes problematic if you make that argument. Baptism of Jesus, right? Yep. Because of baptism, you have Jesus being baptized. You have the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending, which is making it clear that they're three different persons, but they are still only one God. Which is, I know, that's, don't ever try to solve that. Because every time you try to, 
And I'm going to let you know just about every analogy, actually not just about, every single analogy I have ever heard about the Trinity actually falls into some type of a heresy. And basically, the, basically the rule is don't come up with any analogies. Just say, I don't get it. You won't get it. None of us will get it. This is just how scripture describes it. But that's it. Because, and it's like, I mean, like, for example, like sometimes, like a really common one you'll hear is, um, you know how water can be liquid, it can be vapor, and it can be also ice? That's modalism. Because it's still one water. It's, it would only work is that they are, yeah, I'm not even going to try to do that either. <laughs> uh, or some people say, well, you know how the sun gives heat, and it gives light, and it gives energy, and that is, I think that's like Nestorianism, where it's not actually, they're not actually God, but they're projections of God. It's like every single one you come up with, the four-leaf clover, that's partialism, or the three-leaf clover, sorry, that's partialism. So it's, by the way, there's a really funny video on YouTube, it's by Lutheran Satire, it's called, it's like a St. Patrick's Day one that they did, where these guys like, like, so can you tell us about this uh, this Trinity, Patrick? We're just we're just common farmers. We don't know this fancy theology stuff. And so he comes up with all he uses all the common analogies. It's like there he come up with ones like that's modalism, Patrick. <laughs> it's like modalism. It was rebuked by this council at such and such. It's like okay, it's this is that. <laughs> And eventually it's like, so what what do you guys do for a living? Oh, we're snake farmers, but lately business has been bad. Because <laughs> you know, Patrick chased out all the snakes, I suppose. Anyways. So alright, so then so after you go from the books of Moses, you move into the history of Israel. And so this so you have Joshua. And by the way, if you noticed, Deuteronomy is not one hundred percent written by Moses. That is actually true. And the reason we know that is because Moses dies before Deuteronomy's done. And so he can't, he can't write from beyond the grave and pass it on to people. They'd be really disturbed. Like, you don't get to know where I'm buried, but here you go. <laughs> so, um, so somebody ended it, finished it off. There's theory that probably Joshua's most likely the one that finished it. So... Joshua wrote the book of Joshua, and he also had an, an unknown author. Um, what to pick as the key chapter of Joshua is kind of a challenging one, uh, but I ended up picking the, um, the Walls of Jericho. That's where I put for Joshua 6, or as a notable one. You could also probably pick the chapter where they enter into the Promised Land, because that, that is also a very big theme in it. So... Uh, but Joshua, that's pretty much, I mean, that's a big thing. It is there. They're almost there to the, the promised land and they eventually are there. Uh, and there's some pretty cool moments that happen in Joshua. Uh, judges is, this one is a really, really hard one. And by the way, this is Josh, jo, judges is the first of a whole um, sequence of books of the Bible that we have no clue who wrote it. And so Judges is one of those. 
1000 BC is the estimated date on that. And it's, it is actually a really tough book of the Bible to read. Um, because there's a lot of, I mean, if anybody ever were to make this into a, the book of Judges into a movie, it would be rated R. I guarantee it because it is so bloody. Um, it's so incredibly violent. And you have, and by the way, this is also where you get the famous story of Deborah, which usually gets used to, to argue for women's ordination. Um, Deborah is not an argument for that. Actually, it's an argument for, so Deborah is, she did end up ruling over, she pretty much functionally was ruling over the people of Israel as a judge. And the only reason she did was because all the men were incompetent. It was, it was not, if there is a point where a woman has to rise to that point, that means the men, none of the men are doing their job. That's base. It's actually condemning of men. That's Deborah's rise. I mean, it's still a you know Deborah is to be lift. You know, you know we're supposed to give thanks to God, and she's considered one of the great heroes of the faith. Um, but she was actually a very reluctant hero because she she had to be because no one else was doing it. And that's even so. That's even kind of a relative thing. So like when you have a comes to a presidential election. So. And I'm going to tell you that is if it is not ideal for a woman to be the president of the United States. And the reason I say that is because who is the head of the house according to the Bible? Male. All right. Who is the head of the state? The president, right? Yeah. yeah. So if the president of the United States is a is is a woman, she, that means she's the head of the state. That means she's also the head of her husband. By consequence. Yeah, she's the head of all Yeah. And now it could be, well, then she, what if she's not married? But then you're going to have to forbid her from being married. Which, according to the Bible, the Bible says the forbidding of marriage is a doctrine of the devil. So, we can't forbid marriage. So basically, here's, so basically here's the situation. Is there ever a case where we would vote for a woman? Basically, it comes down to this. If you have two candidates running for president, one's a man, one's a woman, or maybe they're both women, women, whatever. But let's say, it's, just say it for argument's sake, it's a man and a woman. And the woman on paper is just an excellent candidate. Everything looks good. The man is an incompetent and should never, ever sit foot in the, in the presidency. You vote for the woman. It's not an ideal situation, but that's basically, that's what Deborah ha why Deborah had to happen is because there's no good men to ha be had. So if you get into a situation when your choice is a, is a competent woman or an incompetent man, you're going to go with the competent woman. And so, but fortunately we have not gone, gotten, we have not gotten to that point yet. So, uh, well, I don't know. If, I think right now we're at the point where both of them are incompetent. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so but I'm not going to go that much farther. So, 
I mean, I say it's, it'd be, you know, I, it's not told. The unfortunate is that men would get to that point that we would have to have that happen. That's what I mean. <laughs> so, and it's the same thing. And that was, and the only reason you would ever have for having um, a male past, I mean, a female pastor, biblically speaking, because again, that's also the reason why you don't have female pastors, is because if a woman is a pastor, that means every time she is in the church, she is the head of her husband. And because she's preaching to him, preaching over him in a, with authority. She has authority over him. Um, and that is actually the core of why women are not to be pastors. And, um, and again, you cannot say to the woman, well, either you be a pastor. If you want to be a pastor, then you can't get married. Then we're the Catholic Church. And that is, again... That's a, that's an unbiblical too. So the only so the only situation really where you need a woman pastor is if you had a congregation full of women, and you literally could not find a man. Because even if you had if you had ninety nine if you had hundred people ninety nine of them were women and one was a man that man's going to become the pastor. So and actually there are situations where they've just appointed people. Like especially like in the Soviet Union, they would sometimes do that because they could not get pastors from other countries because of persecution. So they just they just appoint somebody from the congregation, say, "Hey, you're the pastor." So, uh, Ruth, the book of Ruth. Oh yeah, by the way, Judges. The reason I put chapter two is the key chapter because that explains who the judges were. Uh, the book of Ruth takes place during the period of the judges. And uh, is actually a much more important book of the Bible than I think a lot of people realize. Because, um, well, and it's actually one of the coolest stories, too. Because, I mean, the, I mean, the whole chapter starts with, you know, um, Naomi, her mother-in-law. You know, no, so Ruth loses her husband and Naomi loses all of her sons. And Ruth sticks with her, which is just absolutely an incredible story. And she sticks with her knowing that she probably will never have somebody again. And yet somehow, and she end up, does end up with somebody. And the reason she ends up, and she ends up marrying Joab, which ends up becoming a really big deal because who, what genealogy are they included in? They're in Matthew's genealogy yes. leading to Jesus. Yes. And where, are, where does she meet him? In a town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Ruth is very, very much a Bible, book of the Bible that's set pointing you straight to Christ. I mean, in the short term, it's um, speaking, pointing to... Um, uh, it's pointing to David, King David. But the biggest reason, but the biggest thing is it is pointing to Jesus. It's leading to Jesus. So Ruth, and, it, and honestly, Ruth is only four chapters. You could read that easily in one sitting. So it's a, it's a good book of the Bible to read every now and then. Uh, first and second Samuel. So first Samuel is, uh, so again, both of these, we don't know who wrote it. It's basically dealing with the rise of King David. Both of them are basically setting up King David. Uh, first Samuel is when they demand the king. Which is why I put chapter 3 as the key verse for both books. 
uh, because that's why they end up with kings. It's because they're like, we're not satisfied. Really, it's that they're not satisfied with God. Is really what it comes down to. Is they're demanding it. And, and I, when I've preached on this text, I get people mad. I'll admit, I'll say that. And the reason, and by the way, this is one of those texts that if you preach on it, you will pull you will pull out an idolatry that many people hold. Because what I point out with this is the I point out the fact that our our polit, our leaders can't be trusted. 100%. Now, we honor them, we respect them, but the reality is, is they let us down. And when I, when I mention this, every time I've made this mention at this congregation and when I was in Ocheedon, I had people grumble at me like, how dare you speak about that president about that way? I'm like, I'm not speaking about anything that's unknown. I spoke about historically documented cases. And... The point is, is that we are only to look to one king, Christ the king. And that is the problem in 1 Samuel is that they wanted a king. They demanded it and because they weren't trusting Christ as king or Yahweh as king in this case. And so God gave them what they wanted. And it's one of those good cases of be careful what you wish for. Um, 1 Samuel 8 um, I think I gotta think of what I what is in that. <laughs> I'll have to look up. I think I remember why I picked that as the key verse. Chapter. Is that verse or chapter? Chapter, I mean. Israel demands a king. Samuel yeah. one. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay, going backwards. So First Samuel three. Sorry, First Samuel three is the is the calling of Samuel. 1 Samuel 8 is the demand for the king. So, and 1 Samuel 3 is a cool reading too. That's one of those. Actually, books of 1st and 2nd Samuel are good books of the Bible. I mean, honestly, if you read through the, the Old Testament, get through Leviticus and Numbers, and it's actually not that hard to get through. There's some really interesting stuff that you read through. And so 1 Samuel 3, that's the one where it goes, Samuel, Samuel. What is it? And he keeps on trying to figure out who's talking to him. That's one of the really cool moments. Um, and by the way, his and he was considered a miracle birth too. Samuel was. It wasn't like a virgin birth, but it was still considered kind of miraculous. And there is some for Samuel's birth has some foreshadowing of the birth of Jesus. Um, but First Samuel eight is where they have the calling of the demand of the king. And another chapter I probably could have picked in here was when Saul let him down. When Saul um, basically disobeyed God's, uh, God's command and he prepared a sacrifice that he shouldn't. And the problem there is that he, it's not his job to provide sacrifices. That job belongs to um, Samuel as priest and prophet and priest. And so when he did that, that's why, that's a reminder, just because not everybody has the same calling, same vocation. Um, this is why, while yes, Saul physically has the ability to do it, that doesn't mean he should do it. This is actually very similar to why we don't let anybody do communion. I mean, I mean distribute communion. The only person that's supposed to be doing communion is a properly called uh, and ordained pastor. 
And by the way, that's, a, that's something that our, some in our synod try to fight against. Um, I, elders, I, not even elders should be doing it. Um, and actually there is a, re, I mean, we do it for, um, we allow the elder to commune the pastor if there's only the pastor and the elder. But honestly, the, I, that is not the ideal practice. The ideal practice is the pastor communes himself. And that is actually the way that um, actually a number of Lutheran churches do, but it, we, we have Catholic phobia, and that's why we can't do it. <laughs> and so, but if you read, that's actually, that's the way they used to do it. Even, um, even in the time of Luther, it was always the pastor communed himself. And then he'd, if there was another pastor, he'd commune the other pastor. But the celebrant always communed himself. And that was just the common practice. It was not until, really, we came to the United States and Catholic phobia started running rampant that that started disappearing. And fortunately, Catholic phobia is slowly, very slowly fading away. And I don't know why we're only phobic about Catholic Catholic practices, and not any other denomination. Oh, either. So, because so, they both have problems. <laughs> well, whatever was a Catholic. Huh? Luther. <laughs> Martin Luther. Yeah, and Catholic. well, Luther, Luther has the famous quote: "Don't throw the baby without throw the baby out without don't throw the baby out with the bathwater." That's that's actually what the Calvinists did. The Calvinists basically did that. They threw out the threw the baby out with the bathwater. Then they. They decide to have another baby, basically. And they're like, oh, it looks, the, looks about the same. It's like, why didn't we just keep that first baby? <laughs> so, um, but that's the way they kind of, because the Calvinists, what they did is they, they threw out everything and they started from scrap. And it ended up largely looking almost exactly the same. But, um, and there's some that went really extreme. Okay, so 2 Samuel uh, the key chapter in 2 Samuel is chapter 7, and that is um, the promise, the covenant made with David, um, that he was going to have a son who would build the temple. But here's the thing is, who is he talking about in that covenant? Do you know? Jesus. Yeah, it's, again, it's a, it's a, it's a Christ um, prophecy. But... In the short term, every if you a lot of people very easy to think it's talking about Solomon, because Solomon and Solomon did think it applied. To, it was about him. He built the he built the temple, thinking he was the guy. So it's like, nope, Jesus is going to build the temple. In fact, Jesus is the temple. <laughs> so, um, so Second Samuel is all about King David. Um, first, first Kings starts out with Solomon and the building of the temple, um, but it also has um, the split of the kingdoms, north and south. And that's when you begin to have the bad, really bad kings. So like Saul was problematic, definitely. David had his issues. But Solomon was good at first, and then he fell apart, um, especially with his... 700 wives or whatever it was <laughs> which by the way there's a funny website it's called the biblical curse generator and i found it funny and there's one that says 
I curse we, curse you with as many mother-in-laws as Solomon. <laughs> so I, I just found that funny. Uh, and not to mention a number of his wives were not um, were not um, Hebrew. They were following other, they believed other gods. And so, yeah, he was kind of a, so, and after that, basically started the string of bad kings. Um, and first kings, and then second kings, and by the way, so the second key chapter, that should actually be second kings 25. Second kings 25 is the fall of Jerusalem. And that's what Second Kings is all preparing for. It's all setting up for the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, in their God bless you. God bless you. Okay, so that is kind of the Second Kings is a tough book of the Bible to read, especially of how dark it gets. Because I mean, you have the Northern Kingdom gets obliterated by the Assyrians. And because the, the Assyrians were just cruel people, you read historically. I mean, I mean, one of the things that they loved to do was um, stick a pike up the, <clears throat> you know what, and prop you up outside the city after they destroyed it. And they they did a lot of really. They're Historically speaking, probably only the Mongolians were more brutal than the Assyrians. And so, and the Mongolians, if you ever read the history on them, they're so brutal that in, in Eastern, in Europe, the way they would get kids to go to sleep, they said, go to sleep or the Mongolians will come and get you. Because, hmm. I mean, they're the ones that are famous for eating the commanders and opposing armies. So... <laughs> Now, that was kind of a superstition that they did it, but they did it nonetheless. Um, first is Second Chronicles. Um, this, notice the date. So, like, First and Second Chronicles is written in 430 B.C. This is during the, this is actually towards, pretty much the end of the exile. They're going back. And the reason why it is written then is because as they're going back, they need to be reminded their history. So, because at the end of Second Kings, they were brought to, um, they're forced to go to Babylon, and they lived there, uh, or a remnant of the people went to Babylon. That's the southern kingdom. That's where Jerusalem and everything is. They were the ones that survived, the Babylonians. Um, the Babylonians were nicer than the Assyrians, and the ba Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. And actually, the fa fact that it was the Babylonians that conquered them and not the Assyrians is an important detail. Because God is God keeping his promise. God promised that the Assyrians would not conquer the, the southern kingdom. He gave that promise and he kept it. And there's a reason he made that promise to them and not the northern kingdom. And this is the reason why Genesis 3.14 is so important. Because the promise that was made there, the promise of the offspring that would... Bruce, you know, crushed the serpent's head. The promise that was made to Abraham of an offspring, the promise made to David, not it has not been fulfilled. And the line to that promise is in the southern kingdom, not the northern. That is the only reason they're being preserved. Not because they were better than the northern kingdom. They were just as rotten. 
They probably deserve to get wiped just as much as the northern kingdom did. But God is keeping his promise. In other words, God's promise is greater than our sin, which is actually a very comforting remembrance. And so First Chronicles, it begins, I mean, the first part of First Chronicles is all about creation. And, you know, going up to Abraham, and it re retells everything. Um, talks about, um, you know, the, the, period, the kings and David and the building of the first temple. Descendants. Yeah, and there's a lot of ancestries and a lot of genealogies. And the re like I said, it's retelling their history so they remember where they came from. And so that they could start over. And when they get to, and the thing is, is they're going to build another temple. That's, that's one of the things they're planning to do. And so that's what it's all about, is preparing for them to do that. Um, and then you have, then comes Ezra. And why did I write Deuteronomy 6 as a key chapter to Ezra? That's supposed to be Ezra 6. I really need to have a, <laughs> somebody, to, a proofreader, maybe, <laughs> when, I, when I prepare these. Uh, so... Ezra in Nehemiah largely is dealing with the return from exile. So, um, and also the building of the temple, uh, of the second temple. And, and by the way, the second temple doesn't really get fully completed until quite a while after. But this is like kind of the getting it started. Um, Esther is an interesting book of the Bible because of, it has one very unique trait do you know what makes Esther unique compared to any other book of the Bible? There, there is a word that never shows up even once. God. Yep. It's the only book of the Bible that God is never mentioned. But it's written in such a way that, you, that his presence is sensed. Um, Esther is written, this is actually written during the exile. Um are very close in time to it. And it's kind of like, if you ever, if you ever see the movie 300, are you familiar with that at all? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Esther is almost like a sequel to um, 300 to some degree. I know that's weird to say because 300 was obviously a fictional vert account of an event written, you know, in the 80s. But the events that happened there happened shortly before the events of Esther. And because um, King Xerxes is the one that she, you know, if you ever hear, you know, the one night with the king, that's, um, that's, um, yeah. So anyways, um, the, and that's the Persian king, uh, Xerxes. And the Persian Empire, which, by the way, the Persian Empire was huge. The Persians conquered the Babylonians. And the Persians were actually, I mean, they are very important to Jewish history. Because you have this thing with Esther, um, the great kindness that es I mean, um, Xerxes eventually ended up showing to them. And it was ultimately Darius, who was one of the um, Persian kings, who sent the Hebrews back to Jerusalem. And actually, um, the Old Testament actually refers to him as an anointed, an anointed one. And this is actually one of the reminders that when it comes to political leaders, a political leader does not necessarily have to be a believer. 
Because Darius was def was there's no sign that he was ever a believer. And yet he is he is held in really high regard in the Bible. For what well actually not really it's not really what he did, it's what God did through him. And it's a reminder that even if we end up with a a non believer, God works through them. So and again the question comes down to what kind of a person are they as a whole. And by the way, it's kind of complicated. A lot of voting stuff is complicated because in the times of the Bible, they didn't have voting. <laughs> so that's really hard. When it comes to the Bible, like, what does the Bible say about how we vote? The only thing we could say is, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the principle when you go to the voting booth. Which vote will love my neighbor, will be the most loving to my neighbor? And remembering your neighbor is not, it's the mo right down to the most vulnerable like the ones that are still in the womb. Which is why never, I don't think there's any reason to ever vote for a candidate that's pro-choice. Pro no. Now, just because they're pro-life does not mean they're good, because you might have a pro-life candidate that's not good at anything else. So, because there's been some, they never got really, they never got to the full election, but there's some Republicans in particular that have been pro-life that, I'm like, I love that you're pro-life, but everything, a lot of the other things you say, you're clueless. So kudos for being pro-life, but you should not be president. So um, the poets. So then you go into the poets. Um, and I know I'm going a little bit farther, longer than I wanted to, but the, like I said, there's a lot in this. Um, the poets begin with Job. And that is, notice, 2000 B.C., that is almost 500 years before, um, at least 500, close to 500 years before Genesis was written. Um, it might be even older than 2000. Job was most likely written, um, it was actually probably written before Abraham was born. So to give you how old it is. And it's also the reason why it's the hardest book of the Bible to translate. Because... Um, there are books in the, there's words in the book of Job that we don't know what, we have no clue what they mean. It's a very, very ancient Hebrew and it's poetry, which makes it even harder. And, but it is, Job is a, actually, it's, it's actually not a half bad idea that when you, if you ever read through the Old Testament, read up to Genesis 11. And then when you get to Genesis 11, Go read Job, and then come back to Genesis 12. Because Job takes place somewhere in between chapter 11 and chapter 12. And so, and Job is a, um, it's an interesting book. And actually, Job is the book of the Bible that probably makes reference to a dinosaur. So when people say, well, dinosaurs were millions of years ago, well, there's actually, there are, there are words that show up in there that are Hebrew words that he's talking about something that sounds dinosaur-y. Um, Psalms, notice I have it broken into five, is the date of Psalms, there is not one composition date for the book of Psalms because each one gets written on their own time. So, for example, and actually, 11th century is not even old enough. Um, 
because it actually could probably say go back to 15th, probably the 15th century, because the oldest psalm, I believe, is Psalm 91, which was written by Moses. So there is one psalm that is written by Moses, most likely, or it was a contemporary of Moses. But you all, ironically, do you know what's the youngest of all the psalms? Psalm 1. And it's actually one of the youngest writings in the entire Bible. In the, old, I mean, the entire Old Testament, I mean. And so, but the reason is, is because the books, the, the ordering of the Psalms are, is all, it's thematic rather than um, by date. And so, books 1 through, so Psalm 1 through 41, that's book 1. Um, key Psalms, and I should probably say notable, not key. Um, saying what is a key psalm is a lot harder to say, but notable psalms, Psalm 22, because that's a very, very, that is the prophecy regarding the crucifixion. Um, psalm 23, just because that's at, that's probably the most familiar psalm that, that there is. Um, it's at so many funerals. Um, one of the interesting things is at the end, the way you could tell the end of the book of a psalm is at the very end of every one of them, if you, so, like, for example, if you go to chapter 40, so Psalm 41, if you go to the very last verse, so verse 13, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. That is what is known as a doxology. Doxology literally means words of praise. At the end of every, whenever we do a psalm in church, how do we always end it? Amen. Before the amen, though. Glory be glory to the be Father. Yeah. And to the Son. Yeah, we do, the, we do what is known as the Gloria Patri, yeah. which is known as the lesser doxology, and it's just called lesser because it's shorter. The great doxology is, so there's, in traditional Christianity, there's three doxologies. There's the lesser doxology, which is glory be to the Father and to the Son of the Holy Spirit. The greater doxology is the glory in Chelsea's, glory be to God on high. And then the, the common one, which is praise God from whom all blessings flow. And so the glory in Chelsea's is, is probably the oldest of those three. That's from the 6th century or something like that. Um, but anyways, the reason why we end all the psalms like that is because, is because of this. Is that all of the books, every book of the psalms ends with a doxology. And so book, if you go to the very last psalm, verse, or two, sometimes it's two verses, but if you go to the very end of book two, you'll find another doxology. At the very end of book three, another doxology. Book four, another doxology. And book five, you actually get four psalms that are all doxologies. They're the Hallel psalms, um, the Hallelujah psalms. And, and that's the reason why we end that way is because we don't, there was actually a time when they would read, when they read the psalms, they wouldn't just read one psalm, they'd read one book every time. Mm -hmm. So they... Services, there was a time when worship services, it was not, on, uh, three hours was a short worship service in the ancient 
days. And so we are pansies when it comes to worship services. <laughs> <laughs> when it compared to the history of the of, Christ, of the all Christianity and the Bible and everything. Um, that's mostly um, European, European, Western civilization culture is so obsessed with time. But back then they're like, we just, we're just happy we hear about God. Um, but that's why the doxology, that's why we end the doxology. But the, the reason why we have a slightly different wording is the reason why we have the Trinitarian doxology, which does not come straight from the Bible. It's because actually is the reason is it's because we're identifying, distinguishing. There's a way, it's a way of marking that we are Christian worship, not Jewish worship. And it was basic, it was in the early days of the church, they had to do this very, very early on with the Psalms. They ended with a slightly different doxology. It would be, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever, unto the ages of ages. Amen. Which is actually not that different from, Blessed be Yahweh, who is God, God the Father, God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Yahweh, who, and he is the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. From, um, as it was at the beginning, is now, and ever will be, forever and ever, or unto ages of ages, is from everlasting to everlasting. It's basically another way of saying the same thing. And, and so they did that really early on in the church because they were people like, well, we can't tell the difference. How do we, between the Jew, Jewish, the synagogue worship or temple worship and Christian worship, there's no way to distinguish because of the, and so in the Psalms, and actually they did that with all the prayers. That's why our prayers always end with, through Jesus Christ, our son, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. And that's again, ancient church, practice that they ended all their prayers with doxologies it's again to confess that we are christian it's to let you know which god we are worshiping and actually that is an important distinction because there are many churches if you go into their worship you can't tell which god they're worshiping in fact there are some churches where jesus finding out when jesus shows up is like a game of where's waldo it's like there he is 25 minutes in, he showed up. Whew, that was good. And it's, there's some past, people joke, it's kind of like the fly, Jesus by flyby. If you were, if you, if you sneezed at that moment, you missed them. So, some churches won't even do that. There are churches that actually have unwritten policy that Jesus will not be mentioned in their church. Wow. Because he's too offensive. So, I, like I said, we got through some of this. Um, I'll just kind of, because I don't want to continue into next week because I really don't want to have like continuing lessons. The major prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, you could look at what the key chapters are. I, Isaiah got two because Isaiah is practically, it's almost like two books in one. Um, but, the reason why one is called the major prophets and the minor prophets, there's a very key difference that's very easy to notice. Do you know what would be the key difference between, say, the book of Isaiah and the book of Jonah? It's something you don't even have to read a single word and you'll figure out the difference. Length. Length. Yep. Isaiah is 66 Length. chapters. Jonah is four chapters. That's what the, ma the major prophets are just, they're called the major prophets because they're longer. And Lamentations is kind of treated as a continuation of Jeremiah. 
So, and the minor prophets are all short. I mean, like some of, I mean, there's a reason with like Obadiah, there's a reason there's no key chapter because there's only one chapter. <laughs> it's like chapter one is the key chapter. The first chapter is the best and the worst chapter. <laughs> and it's the middle chap good chapter. <laughs> so it's kind of like um, Jude or something like that, or New Testament. So uh, if you ever want to do like just a nice good crash course on the, New the Old Testament, just read through each of those chapters. Go make that make it make that a home devotional. Just read through that like one chapter a day, and it'll only take you sixty six days to do it. Well, a little bit more than that because I have a few that I have extra chapters. So, anyways, uh, let's end with a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for giving us your Word um, through the words of the prophets. And through the, the times of the Old Testament, we give you thanks for the Old Covenant, the old covenant that you gave to, to Abraham. You continued through Moses and that you completed in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that as we live in the new covenant, as we live in this era of grace, we give you thanks for the incredible mercies that you've given to us, that your, that your mercy is not dependent upon our works or our, be, our obedience to your law, but it depended upon your grace and your promises and your faithfulness. So we pray that we would, we would declare your faithfulness to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, sir. Yep. What's the definition of...